Welcome to That You May Know Him, a podcast dedicated to helping you know Christ better than ever before. Hey everyone, this is Blake, and welcome back to That You May Know Him, the podcast that's dedicated to helping you know Christ better than ever before. I am your host, Blake Barbera, and I'm excited to be with you today for episode 16 of the podcast. Today we're going to be doing something a little different, something unique, I think, something that I hope is the first of many. Today we're going to be looking at a biography, a biography that is inspiring. We're going to be talking about the life of Brother Andrew. Brother Andrew, his uh, formal name, his, his actual name is Andrew Vanderbeel, but he is the founder of Open Doors International, and he is known uh, as a person who was a Bible smuggler. He smuggled Bibles behind the Iron Curtain at the height of the Cold War. From his work, uh, sprouted a ministry that today has offices in over 25 countries and works in over 75 countries all around the world, serving and ministering to and loving the persecuted church. Uh, His story, his biography is told in the book, God's Smuggler. That's not the only place where you can read about his life, but it is the book for which he is known. Uh, That book has sold over 10 million copies and it's been read by countless more people than that since it was first published in 1967. And Brother Andrew is still alive today. He's 92 years old. He lives in Holland where he was born, where he lived his entire life. And uh, he is what I would definitely, certainly call a Christian role model. For me, he's one of the heroes of the faith. He's one that has been alive during my lifetime, so I haven't ever gotten the chance to meet him, although I've often prayed that I would get the chance to meet him. But one of the things that I love and admire so much about Brother Andrew is his humility. And he would be the first one to say, I believe, if he knew that someone was doing a podcast about him, that It has nothing to do with him. He is a simple man from a small village in Holland, born in the 20s. He was the son of a blacksmith. He had almost no formal education. But what he did have was a living and dynamic relationship with God. And he had a surrendered heart, a truly humble and obedient heart. And so today's episode is titled, The Power of a Surrendered Ego, the story of Brother Andrew and Open Doors. What we're going to do is really simple. I'm just going to tell you about his life, and then I'm going to pull what I believe are some of the gems out of his life. I am by no means an expert. Who knows? Maybe uh, maybe somehow, some way, he'll actually hear the podcast and, and want to come on it one day and tell us about his life. But uh, I have been inspired by his by his life and by his book. Ever since I first read it when I was 21 years old, uh, I've read it probably at least 20 times since then. Uh, I read it at minimum once a year. Uh, I just always circle back to it because uh, it's just full. It's full of wisdom. It's full of gems uh, that I think really, really help to serve anyone who is endeavoring to live 
the Christian life. What I want to do before I start with his actual biography is just point out three things that I think are really important to look for as you listen to this podcast, as you listen to me talk about his life, and we'll circle back to these at the very end and sort of elucidate them and expand on them a little more. The first, like I said, and this is what you know, we decided to name the podcast after this, The Power of Egoless Living. What can God do when someone really gives up their ego, gives up, you know, surrenders their own ambitions, their own desires, their own wants in life, and really truly is open to being led by God in whatever direction he decides to take them. The second thing I want you to be listening for and paying attention for is the importance for Christians always to prioritize representing Christ over and above anything else. Brother Andrew calls it coming in the name of the Lord. He spent the first 15 years of his ministry uh, serving churches that were under communist oppression, that were behind the Iron Curtain, churches that were suffering from a very specific thing, which is communism, which it doesn't usually mix well with Christianity. Usually when countries go communist, Christianity becomes something that the government wants to expel, wants to get rid of as much as they can. Brother Andrew made it sort of a priority in life never to be someone who was there to fight communism. He was there to represent Jesus Christ as he traveled and went and served these countries. And I think that that left doors open for him that oftentimes get closed to people because he was adamant that I am serving Christ. I am pro Jesus. I am not here to speak out or speak against anything. So keep your eyes, keep your ears open to that as we get through this episode. And then also, you know, something that Brother Andrew's life I think really does is help to prepare Christians in the West for what may lie ahead for us. Um, He served persecuted Christians, and he himself as a person has been acquainted with some level of suffering. Now, he would probably say he hasn't. He would say that, no, no, the, the people that I serve and minister to are really the ones who are suffering, but he has a theological viewpoint, I believe, that is correct when it comes to what we can expect in this life. And that's not only that's not only on display in the way in which he came to the Lord, because he was not a Christian in his early years, but also in the way that he served, in the way that he was always self-sacrificially willing to lay himself down for the sake of brothers and sisters all over the world. So I want you to pay attention to that as well. The power of egoless living, the importance of Christians representing Christ above all else, And then lastly, uh, uh, how his life helps us to prepare for what lies ahead. Having a correct view of persecution and suffering, discomfort, living in this world, which the Bible says is not our home. Okay, let's jump into Brother Andrew's life. Brother Andrew was born in St. Pancras. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but I think I am. Holland. Uh, If you read his book, God's Smuggler, It says that he was born and raised in the town of Witte, and actually Witte was not the actual town he was born and raised in. When the book was first published, they had to change the names of certain 
people and certain places in order to protect Brother Andrew. Uh, and so the actual town that he was born and raised in is St. Pancras, Holland. He was born on May 11th, 1928, the son of a village blacksmith, uh, the son of a woman who was partially disabled. His mother, it seems like, had a lot of physical ailments throughout her life. And he was one of six children, believe it or not. They all lived in a what sounds like, uh, and I've seen pictures of it, a very small house. He and his brother shared a room that was basically like in the attic. I guess you could call it a loft, but more or less in the attic. Uh, later on in life, he would live in a room above the, the garden shed outside. Uh, so, you know, obviously different culture in Holland than we have here in the U.S. We do have some people in Holland who listen to the podcast. Um, it's probably a little different now than it was back in the 1930s, but uh, big family, humble beginnings, I think. That's a good way to uh, to summarize it. Brother Andrew, by all intents and purposes, was a typical boy. He loved uh, adventure. He loved mischief. He loved fighting. Uh, and as he describes it, from as early on as he can remember, he was into any and all forms of daring do. Anything that was adventuresome, that was risky, he was all in for it. Uh, and yet, while he was, by all intents and purposes, a normal boy, he grew up in times which were far from normal. Uh, the Nazis invaded Holland in 1940, on May 10th, 1940. And so Brother Andrew would have, at this time, uh, been 12 years old. He was born in 1928. In fact, if you actually look at his birthday and you look at uh, when the Nazis invaded, they invaded the day before his 12th birthday. Uh, Holland remained occupied until May 1945. So literally from the age of 12 to the age of 17, really like the prime sort of adolescent years, Andrew uh, was living in an occupied country, a country that was occupied by German soldiers, by Nazis. And he talks about this in the early chapters of his book. He actually got almost got into some serious trouble because his adventuresome spirit, his rebellious spirit, uh, he sort of turned that on the Nazis and he was almost caught pulling some seri- some some pretty serious pranks on the soldiers that were occupying his town, messing with their cars and setting firecrackers at them in the middle of the night and all sorts of things like that. Luckily, it sounds like he never got caught, but nonetheless, uh, he, he, he definitely messed with them. Uh, it sounds like during the war, his family, like many, many families in Europe and in Holland, uh, they had a hard time. I mean, it's, it doesn't say that, you know, they, they, I mean, they, they obviously survived, but um, they were hungry. He says that he was constantly hungry during those years. There were refugees uh, and displaced people showing up all the time. His mother was a very devout religious person, and people were always welcome to eat at their table. But he said as the war went on, uh, the soup got thinner and the food got more scarce, and they were more and more, they were always dependent on his father's vegetable garden, but they became more dependent on it. And after a while, the hunger got to be, as he describes it, nagging and never ceasing. They were constantly hungry until finally, 1945, the Nazis left town and it was still years before things started to get back to normal. But aside from growing up 
and spending a lot of his adolescent years in an occupied country, he also had another tragic event that took place in his life that it seems like to me had a pretty profound impact on him. Um, Before the Nazis invaded, his oldest brother, whose name was Bass, uh, it's spelled B-A-S. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it correctly in Dutch, but uh, passed away. Now, his brother was, it sounds like his brother had some serious uh, mental disabilities. He wasn't able to talk. He wasn't able to care for himself. Um, He wasn't able to dress himself. But he was someone that Andrew felt very close to, that Andrew cared for. And this brother, who couldn't speak, couldn't care for himself, but was nonetheless, uh, you know, the oldest child of the family, had a very special talent. He could play the piano. He could play certain pieces on the piano absolutely perfectly. And Andrew talks about how his father used to sit down after dinner with all the family and play these pieces, but his father uh, was partially deaf from being a blacksmith for so long. And he couldn't play pieces very well at all. He would play the piano and they would be, it would be full of mistakes and nobody really cared. But then his older brother who had serious learning and mental disabilities would sit at the piano and he would play the pieces perfectly. Andrew said it was like an angel was playing these pieces. Uh, and it always made people who were walking by in the village stop and listen. How could this this boy who everyone in the village knows, he spent uh, most of his days standing under an elm tree watching people pass by. How is it that he was able to play the piano so beautifully, having never been taught or anything like that? Anyway, Bass died of tuberculosis when he was 17 years old. And uh, it was really hard for Andrew to watch his brother just decline and basically disintegrate into nothing but bone and flesh. And he said what made it even more difficult was that he Bass had no way of communicating what he was going through. He was suffering so drastically but no one could could help him understand why, and he couldn't communicate what he was feeling. And so that made it all the worse and all the harder for he and his family to watch. Andrew says that it got to the point where he felt like if his brother was going to die, that then he wanted to die too. And he actually says that at one point he went in uh, to his brother's room, and he wasn't supposed to be in there because his brother was contagious, and he... He hugged him and he kissed him and he he tried to get the same sickness that his brother had, but it was to no avail. And when his brother died, he said like he felt like God had had betrayed him twice. And that was difficult for him. Uh, It it obviously had a strain on, on his view of God, which to be honest, wasn't very strong. And and he, he openly admits this. His family, as I mentioned, his mother was religious. His family was pretty devout. I guess you could say it, it sounds like in the sense that everybody around him, his whole town was seemingly devout at that time. He said most everybody went to church every Sunday from his town. The Catholics went to one end of the town and went to their church. The Protestants went to the other end and went to their church. So in other words, his family was religious, but his mother, it sounds like, had a real relationship with God and was truly truly a, a devout woman. But Andrew just wasn't into it. He he. he he would go to church and it was always crowded. So he would tell his family, don't worry, I'll stand in the back. He would listen long enough to catch the sermon text for the week. 
And then he would just bounce. He'd go outside and play or, you know, run around and be outdoors and see things. And he would always then, when he would get together with his family or they would get, you know, families would get together on Sundays after church, he would know enough to be able to talk about the sermon, but it never really impacted him and it never really appealed to him. He just never really caught the vibe. And so um, that coupled with his his sort of want for adventure, his disappointment in life, the heartache that I think was caused by the death of his brother, by his his mother's disabilities, by the suffering that the family endured during the war. Uh, he decided after the war, at the age of 18, to join the Dutch army. So he, he makes it, through, his family makes it through World War II. They make it through not five, over five years of Nazi occupation. And then pretty soon thereafter, his dad is saying, Andrew, what are you going to do with your life? And he says, I'm not going to be a blacksmith, so I will join the army. And the Dutch army was actually fighting in the East Indies at that time. There was, they were fighting to keep parts of Indonesia as their own territory. And so Andrew was eventually shipped off to go fight in a war, uh, in a pretty in a pretty brutal campaign, to be honest with you, as a young 18, 19-year-old man. And this is where things mentally and emotionally for him really started to get out of control. Uh, between the violence, the killing that he was witnessing, and taking part in, uh, it sounds like his his mental health and his sanity and that of his comrades, of his his fellow young soldiers, really started to go haywire. Uh, and the way that they tried to console themselves was by increasing levels of debasement and debauchery. So he, it sounds like, and, and many of the other soldiers turned into an alcoholic. They uh, would go into the jungle and they would fight for weeks on end and witness and take part in all sorts of travesties. And then they would come back to base or come back to camp and they would get absolutely blitzed and they would raise hell and get into all kinds of trouble. And it was just a bad, bad situation that continually, continually um, spiraled more and more out of control. And it got so bad for Andrew that he actually wanted to die uh, again. He, he said he wanted to die with his brother back years before when he was an 11-year-old boy watching his older brother slowly pass away and now at this point he was he he wanted to die again and he was acting and living recklessly so he started wearing a bright yellow straw hat into combat every time he'd go into combat he'd put this hat on and he would he would act recklessly during combat he was known by his comrades as someone who was brave and who was fearless and who would you know run into run into you know open fire but he recognized it as just uh, subconsciously or consciously as a deep depression and a sense of meaningless. And he just was ready to, he, he was ready to expire at any point. And I think he was hoping that he would eventually uh, get shot and be killed. And that did end up happening. He did end up being shot. In 1949, he was shot through the ankle and was permanently disabled uh, while on one of these campaigns. The fact that he was shot, uh, but was not killed, and was actually crippled, was shot through the ankle, and was told at that point he might 
never walk normally again, and he'd probably always have to use a cane, made it even worse. So at this point, he's 21 years old. He spent two years uh, in the jungle, fighting in combat, killing, witnessing horrible things, taking part in horrible things, turning into an alcoholic who's losing his sanity, and then he gets shot and disabled. And he has to spend months in a hospital. But not surprisingly, for those that know God and know the way he works, this is where things really started to turn around for Andrew. As we often see in life, it is it is in our most dreadful, desperate states that God meets us. Uh, and it's often in suffering and hardship that we begin to hear the voice of God the most clearly. Right? It's only it's only through suffering that we become acquainted with the God of all comfort. Second Corinthians one says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 1, I, I think it really paints the picture that as a Christian with a Christian mindset that this world is not our home, that we are we are putting all of our hope, all of our expectation on the life that is to come. We realize that when we endure hardship in this life, God can and will use it for his glory. He'll use it not only to form and fashion us, he'll use it to bring other people to him. Because as someone once said, when, when someone realizes that the gospel message contains something so transcendent that it's greater even in this life for the people that believe it, it it triggers something for folks. So Andrew wound up in a military hospital in the East Indies, and that's where he started reading his, he started reading his Bible, the Bible that his mother had given him before he left, before he left Holland to go off and join the army. And one that he had never picked up in all those three years that he had been away. It had been in the bottom of his bag and he had never touched it until he was laid up in bed in a hospital recovering from a shattered ankle, a gunshot wound through the ankle. And things really started happening. God began setting him up for a radical transformation. Now this led eventually... Not at first, because there was a process. He started reading it for a while. He started writing to people back home, asking for help, understanding the Bible, but it wasn't grabbing hold of him. He was interested and he was reading, but it wasn't it wasn't getting him yet, but it would soon enough. Uh, and other things started happening, right? Um, nuns who were taking care of the soldiers started talking to him and saying things to him. And he would say things like, why are you so joyful all the time and they would and one nun in particular said Andrew a good Dutch boy like you should know it's the love of Christ of course things like this started happening and, and God was really setting him up but it wasn't until he got back home and he had to go he went and saw his family 
He was walking with a limp. He, he walked with great pain and difficulty with a cane as a 21-year-old. And he had to go then to an occupational therapy center or, or it sounds like a hospital or more like a convalescent place for, for wounded soldiers for a time to recover, to learn how to walk again and you know to, to, to get as recovered as he could. And it was there that he was invited one night to a tent meeting. Uh, a, a young gal walked into this convalescent hospital. All the boys whistled and wooed and she invited them all to come to a tent meeting. Now, interestingly enough, that young girl, years and years later, would become his wife, Corey, Cornelia Vanderbilt. She actually just passed away a couple of years ago. Uh, also another person I never got to meet. I, I wish that I could spend more time talking about Corey in this episode because his, wife's, his wife was most definitely, by the sounds of it, very much of one heart with him. Um, but we're talking today about Andrew. So, but just be aware, uh, she was a key part of his life. She was a woman of great faith, of great faithfulness. Uh, and no, no real story of brother Andrew can be told without mentioning Corey. Uh, but nonetheless, at this point, he didn't know this girl from anyone. She was just a young Christian who was helping take care of soldiers who walked in and said, Hey, I invite everyone to a tent meeting tonight. It was a way for he and his buddy to get out of the hospital for the night. So they went to this tent meeting. They actually got a bottle of liquor and got blitzed during the meeting. But during the meeting, this song was sang called Let My People Go, right? After, after the story of the, the, of the Israelites and Moses telling Pharaoh, let my people go. And the words of that song started echoing through Andrew's mind that night And the next day, as he was hungover, going through his occupational therapy activities, he kept thinking about these words, let my people go. And all of a sudden, things really started to change. That next day, he picked up the Bible and it came alive. It was like he had never read it before. It went from being something he didn't really feel like he understood to being the greatest adventure story ever told. He could not put it down. When he got home from the occupational therapy center, he received his separation pay from the military and he bought a bicycle. And he not only started started attending church every Sunday in his town out of a desire to do so, he started bicycling to church services in the surrounding towns and areas Every single night of the week. And this question kept coming to his mind. And and the words of that song kept coming to his mind. What is holding on to me? What am I in bondage to? The song was, let my people go. And he was asking himself, because of that song, what's keeping me from giving my life to God and from turning myself over to God? And so months go by where he is attending church every day. He's reading his Bible incessantly. His family's actually starting to get worried about him. His sister at one point comes up into his room in the attic or the loft and says, you know, we're all really worried about you. Papa thinks that you have shell shock because all you do is read your Bible and read Christian books and you're going to church every night of the week. We think it's too much, Andrew, and we're worried. And he just looked at her and said, I don't know what it is, but I sure like it. I'm sure glad it's happening. 
It was with all this sort of as the backdrop that one night in the winter of 1950, about a year after getting shot through the ankle, a life-transforming event happened. And it was a life-transforming event that was, it, it, it happened quietly. It, it wasn't a big showy thing. It happened when Andrew was alone with God lying in his bed and no one was around, but he looks back on it and he describes it in such a meaningful way. And I want you to pay close attention to the words that he uses when he talks about what he did, what his experience was like when he turned himself over to God for good. This is what he said. He says, before I found one though, okay, he's talking about, uh, he had been looking for a job at the time. Before I found one, a fragile little event occurred that changed my life far more radically than the bullet that had torn through bone and muscle a year before. It was a stormy night in the dead of winter, 1950. I was in bed. The sleet blew across the polders as it can only blow in Holland in mid-January. I pulled the covers higher under my chin, knowing that outside the sleet was driving almost parallel to the ground. There were many voices in that wind. I heard Sister Patrice, the monkey will never let go. I heard the singing under the big tent, let my people go. What was I hanging on to? What was it that was hanging on to me? What was standing between me and freedom? The rest of the house was asleep. I lay on my back with my hands under my head, staring at the darkened ceiling, and all at once, very quietly, I let go of my ego. With a new note in the wind yelling at me not to be a fool, I turned myself over to God, lock, stock, and adventure. There wasn't much faith in my prayer. I just said, Lord, if you will show me the way, I will follow you. Amen. It was as simple as that. And the next day he said he woke up having slept with more peace than he had felt in years and years and years. And I remember the first time I read that book as a 21-year-old, that hit me like a freight train. I had never heard someone describe their salvation experience saying something like, I gave up my ego. I laid myself down. I surrendered to God. (laughs) I, I didn't just accept Christ as a way of saying, okay, Jesus, I receive your forgiveness. Thanks. I'll take the salvation. Awesome. No, it was truly an exchange. There was truly an exchange that happened for Andrew. He let go of his eagle. That is such a powerful, meaningful way of describing what the Christian life is, what the exchanged life is. And the thing that I think is so amazing about Andrew and through all that he had endured, the way that God led him through these different experiences and through these different things that happened to him and to the point where when he was ready to give his life to Christ, he understood what it meant fully, completely. He understood that it was him 
exchanging his life for a brand new life, that his ego, his ambition, his, his drive, whatever hopes and dreams he had for himself was no longer at play, that he was giving himself over to God completely. This is, I think, one of the hardest things for Christians to do, honestly. I think many Christians have had salvation experiences that are significant, but how many of them can say with a surety, that is the moment when I let go of my ego? How many can say that they let go of their pride, their ambition, their objectives as a part of their salvation experience? Brother Andrew really, really understood something, not only about the depravity of man, which he had experienced firsthand as a soldier, as a young soldier who was there in the jungles fighting and killing and being shot. He also understood something about the Christian life and the commitment and the total exchange that takes place when someone becomes a a follower of Jesus, when someone becomes a Christian, a real Christian. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, Christ lives in me. Okay. From here, Brother Andrew's journey, his life really took off. So what he did next was he found a job at a chocolate factory, at Ringer's Chocolate Factory. It was a big, well-known Dutch chocolate factory at the time. And he turned this into his personal mission field. But he also had a godly ambition after he turned his life over to God to become a missionary. So that was his goal. But in the meantime, he needed a job. He needed to figure out and sort of let God reveal the next steps. So he, be, he, he gets a job at Ringer's. He becomes soon enough a supervisor, uh, a hiring supervisor. Uh, he ends up winning all sorts of people to Christ in this chocolate factory. He also notices that there's a young girl working there who's also a Christian. And this is also sort of like her mission field. She's still a late teenager at this point. She hasn't started college. She still lives with her family. But nonetheless, he's only 20. 23 years old. He's young too. He notices her. He can't at first recognize from where he's seen this girl before. And then he realizes this was the girl who invited us to the tent meeting a year or two years before who walked in to the occupational therapy center for soldiers and invited him to that tent meeting where he got drunk, but he also heard the song that stuck with him for years. Let my people go or for months, I should say. So he ended up working at Ringers for three years and he did great work and he grew in the faith. He started educating himself. He was reading the scriptures. He was reading theology. He was reading every missionary book he could get a hold of. Funny that we're doing a podcast on the story of his life uh, and his life is the life of a missionary and his story is quite inspiring. But then it became clear to him that he was going to attend a missionary college in Glasgow, Scotland. It was the one place that he could go where you didn't need to have a formal education in order to get in. So he, because of the war, when he was a child, his formal education stopped at the age of 12. He doesn't even still to this day have a high school diploma. And any formal ministry training in Europe at that time required at least a college degree to get into advanced levels. But there was one place run by the World Evangelization 
uh, group or ministry that offered it that offered a, a missionary training program to anybody who was genuinely called, who was genuinely committed to living a life of faith. And so after some time of working at the chocolate factory and applying to this place and getting accepted, and there's all sorts of cool stories that happened. Three years later, after giving his life to God, he winds up in Scotland for a two-year training program, missionary training program at the World Evangelization College in Glasgow, Scotland. Now, the reason that I think that it's important to mention this two-year period is because two very important things, from my estimation, happened during these two years in Glasgow. The first thing that happened is Brother Andrew developed a habit. He developed a a devotional practice. Call it, call it a practice, a devotional practice, which everybody at the WEC, the World Evangelization College, had to do. Everybody had to develop this practice because this was part of their daily routine. The first hour of every day for every person was spent in quiet time, in personal devotion, prayer, and Bible reading time. This is something that had a huge impact on Andrew. He had been reading the Bible since he was a Christian, faithfully, but he had never developed a routine or a practice that put him every day, same time, same place, before God. That that was the most important part of the day, sort of like that, that North Star around which every other activity, habit of life revolves around. And so Andrew developed this at Glasgow and it, it, it carried him through the rest of his life, this practice of reading the Bible every morning, first thing in the morning and spending time in prayer. And if you ever take the time to actually read his biography for yourself and learn about his life, it's amazing when the amount of times when he was at crossroads or he was facing great challenges in his life after this, where God revealed things to him during that morning quiet time. It's just amazing how often that happened to him. Andrew now, I believe, is 92 years old. And the last I saw him interviewed, which was, I think, five years ago, um, so he would have been 87 at the time, he said that he still reads the Bible. For him, he said, I need two hours every morning, and that's what I do. Every morning, I get up and I read the Word first thing for two hours. Now, I'm not saying anything about how you or I or we or people should cut two hours out of their day to read the Bible. You do what works for you. But I am saying that Andrew, like many great men and women of God, made Bible reading and a devotional, a set devotional time, a essential part of their lives. And you see the fruit of it in his life. The other thing that happened at this missionary training college was that he learned how to trust God for his day-to-day needs. Now, remember, I told you this man was of humble origins. 
He was from a quiet town in Holland. No one in his town even had a car. In fact, years later, he would be the first one to show up with a car, a car that God gave him to do his work. Uh, his family lived, they, they, they lived largely off of his father's vegetable garden growing up. Uh, his father supported six kids as a blacksmith. His mother could not work outside the home because she was, she had some physical disabilities. So when he got to school, it was a big deal for him that he not only needed to pay his tuition, he needed to have his daily needs provided for, but he knew that if God had him there at that school on this track, then God was the one who had to be trusted, trusted with the provision. And so Andrew invented this game that he, that he, that he played with himself and with God, his father. He called it the game of the royal way. And what he did was he came into an agreement with God that if he was going to spend his life serving the king, the king of kings, then the needs of his life were going to have to be met by the king. And if he was truly a servant of the king, they were not going to be met in skimpy ways. So in other words, Andrew's agreement with God was that if my tuition uh, you know, if, if in other words, if 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 I'm supposed to be here at this school for the next two years, then I expect that I will have the money to pay my tuition in full when it's due every semester. That was sort of the agreement that he came to, and that if it was even one day late or even one hour late, then he would take that as a sign from God that he wasn't supposed to be there anymore. And so this was sort of where he came to in his walk with God. That Lord, I'm going to trust you to be my provider, but I am not, I'm going to have a standard for myself, not, not for you, for myself, that a standard that will keep me God honoring and that will, that the world will be able to look at and say, wow, this is real. This right here is real. He's never, I'm never going to borrow money and I'm never going to be late. If I'm late on something, then I take it as a sign from you. This is no longer your will and I'm out immediately. And so there's all sorts of amazing, this type of, of thing, this type of living faith in God for practical needs grew and it grew exponentially. And there are all sorts of stories throughout his life of God providing in amazing ways. But I'm going to talk more about this at the end too, because both of these habits, um, his daily Bible reading and devotional practice and his living by faith, both of these things, the the impact of these, what they have to teach us, but also the way in which they worked together to buffet him throughout his life are hugely important. And so I'm going to come back to those both at the end, but I just wanted to point both of those out. When, I'm, when we're talking about his time at the missionary training college, because they're both hugely important things. Okay, after Andrew left, or after, I guess you'd say, his time at the, at the college was winding down, his two-year program was coming to an end, his life's work began to take shape. So a lot of people don't know this about Brother Andrew. He had been bothered by a bad back for much of his adult life. 
This isn't even in um, his his biography. Uh, I heard him talk about it, and I read some interviews that he did that talk about it elsewhere. So he actually he actually was disqualified. He found out partway through this missionary training program he was in that he was not going to be able to apply uh, for formal missionary status through any a missionary organization, right? He wasn't, no formal missionary organization that sponsors missionaries was going to send him out and support him because he had a disability. He had a bad back. Uh, and at times the pain would be crippling. He would be laid up for days on end. And so that originally was a huge cause for disappointment for him. He's like, I'm, I'm here. I want to be a missionary. All I want to do is serve God. But now I'm realizing I'm being told I won't be able to be a missionary in the traditional sense. But what God did was amazing. So Andrew was going down into the basement of the college. So the college was actually, this missionary training college was run out of a gigantic house in Glasgow, Scotland, where all the students lived. Andrew was going down to the basement toward the end of his program to get his suitcase to pack his stuff to go back to Holland. And he found a magazine sitting in the basement. He had never seen it before, and no one who lived in the house had ever seen it before. And in the magazine, he saw a huge advertisement for a communist youth festival, which was taking place in Warsaw, Poland in July 1955. This was one of the countries behind the Iron Curtain, right? Remember, Europe at this time is separated into the West and the East. There's literally, literally and figuratively, an Iron Curtain that separates countries that are under, more or less under Soviet influence and are communist from countries in the West which are free. Now, I did a little research on this because this is uh, this was an important event. Uh, this was the, the the event that would end up giving him the vision for the rest of his life. This communist youth festival that he went to was called the World Festival of Youth and Students. And believe it or not, this festival is still going on to this day. Uh, it's held every three to five years. In various countries, the last one was held in 2017 in Russia, and the American Communist Party actually sent a delegation of young people to it, to the last one that was held in 2017. Amazing. Well, Andrew sees this magazine article and sees that there are going to be thousands of young people at this festival who are there to celebrate communism. And he writes to them and says, I'm training to be a Christian missionary. Can I go as a Christian and exchange ideas with you? And they say, yes. And they they write back and they say, here's your pass. You get a discount because you're a student. We look forward to seeing you. And God miraculously provides the ways for him to go. And so he goes. And he spends three weeks plus in Warsaw, Poland, witnessing all these demonstrations and plays and dances and athletic activities. And it's all in in touring the city and learning all about the glories of communism, which he knows are a farce. But nonetheless, while he's there, he visits churches behind. He decides, well, he decides to go to church. 
He goes first to a Catholic church, and then they ask him, "What you know? What, what are you? Are you Catholic?" You probably he says, "I'm Baptist." And they say, "Would you like to go to a Baptist church?" And so on a Sunday in Warsaw, he's there to attend the 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 Communist Youth Festival. He goes to a Baptist church, and something is said to him after that day of getting to fellowship with these. Christian brothers and sisters who live under a communist regime who the the government is not a fan of the church, is not a fan of Christianity. They're constantly monitoring, watching, trying to force churches to promote and support the government. He's told by the pastor and by the people in this church, the fact that you are here means so much to us. We have not heard from or seen anybody from the West in years. And we feel often like we are so alone. The fact that you are here means the world to us. And so on the day that he's set to leave Poland, those words are echoing through his mind. And he realizes that it is his life's work now. God is giving him this vision that his life's work will be a ministry of presence to not just Christians living in communist countries, although that's mostly what it was for the first 15 years, but to Christians who are living in high-risk areas, Christians who are persecuted, Christians who are suffering. And so from there, Andrew goes home and he has he has a, a, new, a new skip in his step. He ends up going within a year after that to Yugoslavia. He, he finds a way to get you know, uh, to, to, to find another venue to get himself to one of these countries. Uh, there was a, a lady who came and heard him speak at a church about his visit to communist Poland and said, she was a communist, and she said, I don't think you understand communism. I'm leading a group to Yugoslavia to show people the glories of communism. You should come to that. So he goes on that, and again, he ends up visiting churches. And this time he gets in a little bit of trouble because he escaped from the group. And this just solidifies the fact that these Christians behind the Iron Curtain who are being persecuted, who are living cut off from the rest of the world, need support, need help. And he realizes also that they need Bibles. They need Bibles. They don't have Bibles. There's a Bible shortage. A lot of these communist countries said that they were printing Bibles and Bibles weren't illegal and there's Bible shops, but really there weren't Bibles available. One country even said that the government even sponsored a new translation of the Bible and they promoted it and advertised it, but they never printed it. So Andrew became known as God's smuggler because that's the name of his, that's the name of the book that's written about the first, his life and the first 15 years of his ministry. And Bible smuggling was and is a huge, still a huge part today of Open Doors, the ministry that was that came to be uh, out of his work. Uh, but it's not the only thing that he did, and it's not the only thing that Open Doors does. Open Doors International to this day is a ministry of presence. They exist to serve the persecuted church. Sometimes that involves Bible smuggling. Uh, there was a huge project that they undertook in the late 80s or early 90s, I want to say, that Brother Andrew led... Um, they smuggled a million by open doors smuggled a million Bibles into China uh, overnight. 
uh, via via the ocean. They actually packed a million Bibles into watertight packages and got a barge and floated a million Bibles onto the shores onto the shores of China. And that was known as Project Pearl. That's written about in another book about Brother Andrew. Um, but nonetheless, so what happened is Brother Andrew started traveling to countries all behind the Iron Curtain. God miraculously provided them with a car he had never driven before. Before that, he started applying for visas and he started going to these countries behind the Iron Curtain and being a ministry of presence. And every time he'd go, he'd take more and more and more Bibles and he would smuggle them into the country because they were illegal to bring into the country in all these places he was going. Yugoslavia, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Warsaw, Alba- I mean, you, you name it. Just look up Bulgaria. Just look up the countries that existed behind the Iron Curtain. And Brother Andrew was going there and he was smuggling Bibles. And he would pray the smuggler's prayer is what it became known as when he would be crossing a border in his blue Volkswagen packed full of Bibles. He would pray, God, you can make blind eyes see so you can also make seeing eyes blind. Don't let these Bibles be seen and confiscated and me be arrested. And for years, he and his team smuggled Bibles into communist countries with no consequence, with no trouble at all. And so, uh, you know, throughout the course of his life, uh, so, so Brother Andrew started his ministry uh, after he visited Poland in 1955. It was a few years later, he, he got reunited with Corey, the, the girl who had advertised the tent meeting years before and had worked at Ringer's Chocolate Factory with him. They ended up getting married. When he proposed to Corey, he said, you really shouldn't marry me. The life, the, the, the life of a missionary wife is dreadful. I'll be gone for months at a time. You might, I might disappear and you'll never hear from me again. I have no, uh, I have no um, reliable income to offer you. I don't have a place to like, he, 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 it was hilarious. His proposal was, you really shouldn't do this because life is not going to be easy for us, but, I, but we'll serve God. We'll serve him together. And I hope you'll say yes. And she did say yes, and they were married, and they have five kids. And uh, and as I said, she passed away a couple years ago. Brother Andrew is ninety two today, uh, but nonetheless, they are an incredible, incredible example of faithfulness and of what God can do when someone surrenders everything, when someone is willing to surrender their ego, even their ego, over to God what God can do with that sort of life. 13 years after his work began, God's Smuggler was published. By that point in time, he had a team working with him, a team of folks uh, that are named at the uh, sort toward the end of his book that were smuggling Bibles and were uh, helping him. They were an extension of his ministry of presence. Uh, and so after 1967, he couldn't go to Iron. He couldn't travel the Iron Curtain countries anymore because these governments got a hold of the book, God Smuggler, and knew who he was. There were even KGB files uh, on Brother Andrew himself, but his team was going to countries behind the Iron Curtain, and he shifted his attention. And for the last 40-plus years, he has focused his attention on Christians in the Middle East and going to Muslim nations, representing Christ, and supporting churches. So, Open Doors, the ministry uh, that exists today, formed, came to be out of this 
one man's life work, this one man's life's work and the little team of people that God placed around him to help him. And now, as I said, he's 92. Open Doors is a huge worldwide Christian organization and still to this day doing a marvelous job, I believe, in supporting persecuted Christians. My wife and I have followed and supported Open Doors for years. We're huge fans and we thank God for the work that they do. To wrap this up, um, I, th- I want to just talk about a couple of things that I think are, are very important. Um, I want to circle back, I should say, to two things that I mentioned from his time at the missionary college, the World Evangelization College. And then I want to circle back also to the three things that I mentioned in the beginning to look for, to listen for, sort of the learning points um, that we can take from Brother Andrew's life. So his absolute faith in God for provision. His life is filled with countless stories of how God provided, uh, how the game of the royal way always turned out uh, in these miraculous ways. Uh, And it continues. It continues on to this day. But there's one story in particular that I want to share with you. It's from his book. Um, It took place in West Germany. He He was coming back from a trip, from a trip behind the Iron Curtain. He had his VW bug. He had stopped and picked up two Dutch college students who were working in the refugee camps in West Germany. And at this point, he had driven... I think over 200,000 kilometers in his VW bug. His odometer had actually gotten to as high as it could go, 99,999 kilometers, and then had flipped over and started over and had gotten and reached its maximum again. So he's driving back to Holland through West Germany and his, his VW bug finally breaks down. And he looks up and he realizes he's right by a roadside phone. So he, he goes and he picks up the phone and he calls a local mechanic who's just close by. Ten minutes later, the mechanic's there with his tow truck. And he looks at the engine and he says, you know, I mean, this, this car has a lot of miles on it, 99,999 kilometers, but I don't know what what's wrong exactly. And he says, Andrew tells him, oh, that's actually the second time the odometer's reached that, that point. The mechanic tells him, um, I think this car has given all it's, it has left to give, to be honest with you. I think the engine just needs to be rebuilt. It's shot. Andrew says, how much is it going to cost? Guy tells him 50 German francs. And Andrew says, okay, great. Andrew knew, he's like, God, I, I'm in Germany where the car was made. I'm right next to the phone when it broke down. This has to be you. Okay, go ahead and rebuild it. Uh, I'll go exchange the last of the money that I have so I can pay you. Uh, I'll be back in an hour. The guy said, uh, you know, the shop's closing, but the guys will stay late and I'll see you. I'll see you when you get back and we'll have the engine completely, completely rebuilt. As Andrew is taking the train to go exchange money in West Germany, his car's being rebuilt in a local mechanic shop. He realizes he doesn't have enough money. The German francs that here, the the money that he's going to have converted from Dutch guilders to German francs, he thought was enough but it wasn't. They were short. And I forget the exact amount of money that they were short, but it was a very specific amount. And so 
he's coming back and, and he realizes like, God, I know this is you because all the signs point to this being you. I gave the guy my word that I would pay. I thought I had enough money. We're in Germany. We broke down next to a phone, next to a mechanic shop that works for, I mean, like this is you. I know you're going to provide. So on the train back to the mechanic shop, he's expecting that God is like something miraculous is going to happen. And he gets back and nothing's happened. He gets off the train. He walks back to the mechanic shop and nothing's happened. He walks in and he first thing he says is, where are the two Dutch boys that were with me? And the owner of the play, of the garage says, oh, they went for a walk, but they'll, they said they'd be right back. And Andrew says, okay. And he pulls out his wallet and, and he said, just as the, the, the mechanics are finishing up, I, I was expecting a miracle to happen. God has always provided for me. He's always met me right where I am. He's just about to start telling this mechanic, I'm actually short of the money. And I don't know what he was going to say. Don't worry, I'll get it for you. He wasn't a ton short, but it was a specific amount. Right as he's about to open his mouth, the two boys, who he didn't even know, he was just giving them a ride back to Holland. they, They were Christian brothers, but they come running into the mechanic shop and they say, Andrew, and he says, yeah. They say, we were just walking down the street and a woman walked up to us and said, excuse me, boys, are you Dutch? And they said, yes. And she said, God wants you to have this. And she handed them money and she walked away. And they ran back to the garage to tell Andrew, and how much money do you think it was? It was the exact amount of money that they needed to pay for the repairs and to get home, to buy enough gas to get all the way back to Holland. That's just one example of countless that are told in God's smuggler about God and his abundant provision for Andrew and for his work. And it's all sort of backdropped by this agreement that he made with God. God, I will trust you to provide and I will look at the way my life is being led and I will just assume that if you want me to continue down a path, you will meet all the practical needs. And if if we're short, then I'll know that that's a sign from you that I'm not supposed to be doing this. But there's something even more important, I think, than that. Brother Andrew, I believe, was buffeted and still is buffeted to this day by the humble beginnings that he was raised with and that he continued to live with throughout his life. And I think his devotion and his Bible reading have something to do with this. So Brother Andrew has managed throughout his life to keep a godly, God-honoring, Christ-exalting relationship to money. He started out as a missionary who lived completely, I mean, it was day-to-day. God always provided, but it was day-to-day. By the time Open Doors had grown and he was the president and the director of this huge worldwide Christian ministry, there were millions of dollars coming in, millions of dollars coming in through Open Doors every year. It would have been easy for Andrew to start taking a bigger salary, to move into a bigger house, to buy a nicer car. Andrew and his wife kept the same lifestyle throughout their entire lives 
as they had when they grew up with humble origins in Holland. They live in an adequate house. They drive an adequate car. They have decent clothing. They eat a lot out of their vegetable garden, but they never let the ministry become a means for enriching themselves. And they never let material wealth become something that would grow out of place in their lives. They never let material wealth becomes a, become a means or a mechanism of personal satisfaction or personal joy. Look, we can go afford to buy a big house now, or we can go afford to buy a nicer car now. Let's do it. No, they remained content with what God gave them, with what God provided them, and they remained deeply committed to the work over and above, you know, uh, what most people think of. I mean, when they think of what is happiness? Oh, well, one day I'll be able to retire and I'll have a bunch of money in the bank and I'll, you know, that, that'll mean I'm happy. It was never a source. Material wealth was never appealing. It was never a source of happiness to them. And so they, as Andrew put it in an interview he did when he was much older, we never allowed ourselves to get sticky fingers. We never allowed ourselves to take more than we needed because we knew that that would never make us any happier than we already were. Happy in God. And so I think that is a, it's an amazing example. And it's one of the reasons I believe why God has blessed his ministry and allowed his ministry to become so vibrant and, and big and successful and prosperous because of that correct biblical mindset and not confusing the two, not confusing financial blessing with spiritual blessing and the license or the opportunity to enrich yourself or to live more lavishly than is really necessary. The other thing is his daily devotion. I talked about this already, but I'll just say it again. He practiced and still to this day practices daily Bible reading and a morning quiet time that is the bedrock of his life. He reads the Bible every morning. It's the most important part of his day. He'd be the first one to tell you that. That commitment to daily devotion, daily time with God, seeking God, reading his word, putting his word on in your mind, uh, making intercession to God, it has buffeted him and it has turned him into a very, very strong Christian. I think the thing I like the most about Brother Andrew, as I've watched him be interviewed and read about his life and read books about him, and he's not a mamby-pamby Christian at all. He's not a surface-level Christian. Uh, he's he comes he seems like he's an extremely kind and loving and wonderful man. I mean, you can just you can go online and look up pictures of him meeting, uh, you know, the leaders of Hamas and the Ayatollah and praying with them. And I mean, it's it's crazy the the situations this guy's been in. He's loving, he's kind, but he is not a pushover. I, I heard a story once about a a church in California that tried to give him a lifetime achievement award for 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 serving God for his whole life. And he looked at them like, what is wrong with you, with you guys? Of course I would serve God with my life. What, what are you doing with your lives? I don't want a a, a lifetime achievement award. This is what we're called to. Um, He's a real Christian. 
He's a real Christian. And I think he would say, certainly, that his that that practice of having a strong devotional life, of making time with the Lord, seeking the Lord, the most important, essential part of every day has a lot to do with that. Okay, last thing I want to say. I appreciate all of those who have stuck stuck through this. This is a we're at an hour and seven minutes now. That's okay though. This is such such a, a wonderful, inspiring thing to be talking about. A biography that inspires your life. The story of Brother Andrew. I just want to return to the three learning points that I talked about or that I mentioned in the very beginning to wrap this up. What Brother Andrew's life has to teach us as Christians. First, the power of egoless living. Egoless living. This episode is titled The Power of a Surrendered Ego. And when Andrew gave his life to Christ, he said, I let go of my ego. His life exemplifies obedience, humility, and submission to God. All too often, I think Christians nowadays take on this posture of, well, God, you know, I mean, I'll, I'll be obedient to you, but I have, you know, I have my limits. I have my boundaries. I have my boundaries. Like, I'll do this, but I'm not going to do that. You know, God, like, God, you sort of need to work within my comfort zones too. That That's not... That's not the way of the cross. I'm just being honest. And that's not Brother Andrew's way either. Obedience doesn't have limits for him. Andrew has a posture of, I serve a master that's greater than myself. And this is evident throughout his life. It's evident when he writes that when he gave his life to Christ, when he says he gave up his ego when he gave his life to Christ, he means it. He exemplifies it. I'll say more on that in a minute. The second one was the importance for Christians to always prioritize coming in the name of the Lord. I maybe didn't talk about this as much during this episode, but I'll I'll just mention it now. Andrew made up his mind that he was going to represent Jesus Christ. He was going to be pro-Christ. And even though he spent 13 years traveling to communist countries in order to serve the church, he never took on a posture of, well, I'm going to be anti-communist. He was actually invited to speak at an anti-communist convention one time when he was known as this person that served churches in communist countries. And he said, I'm not going to be anti-communist. I'm pro-Jesus Christ. I think that that wisdom that he displays in taking on a mindset like that, like I am here to represent Christ. Now that's not to say, I I don't believe that, I know that Brother Andrew does not think that communism is a fruitful thing, is a fruitful form of government. I know he doesn't think that. But the point is, is he didn't let himself be put in a situation where what he is on earth to do and who he is on earth to represent was compromised. In other words, if he was an an anti-communist, there would be all sorts of doors that he would not have opened to him that remain open to him. Even now, if he were anti-Islam, if he were known, he's worked in Islamic countries for the last 40 years, 
if he were known as someone who is anti-Islam, he probably wouldn't be welcome to continue to to continue to do the work that he does in those countries. But he makes a point of saying, I am pro-Jesus Christ. I represent Jesus Christ. I am a Christian. And that is what I'm here to do, to represent, to be. I bring the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I hope you can see that there is wisdom in that. And again, I don't I don't want to say that, you know, I mean, I think Christians, especially now, should be talking about certain things and should be saying, should be evaluating what's right and what's wrong. What's going on in, in my country, in our country, in the world over here that is going to help Christians or, you know, glorify God and what isn't or, you know, what's what's godly, what's not godly, all these sorts of things. But there's a there's a wisdom to what he did, to saying, first and foremost, primarily, I represent Christ. And that's what I'm going to stick to. And whatever door God has opened for me, in whatever environment, in whatever situation, that's the message I am going to stick to. He even, he even says in an interview that I read recently, uh, there was a time when he did work in Israel, and he was asked about Israeli-Palestine relations. And he said, this is his response. This was so brilliant. This was so wise. He said, the best thing that anyone can do for Israel is to win her enemies to Christ. Wow. I thought, wow, what a thing to say. What a response for a person to have. Why doesn't every Christian think like that? Okay, last point, last learning point. Last thing we can take from Brother Andrew's incredible life. And I think if he heard this, he'd say, why are you doing a podcast about me? It's not about me. He would say that. But Brother Andrew, sorry. This, we, we had to do it because you have a life that inspires. Understanding his life and work may serve to help Christians prepare particularly Christians in the West, prepare for what lies ahead. And this is twofold. This is twofold. What Christians in the West, what I believe Christians in the West need to hear the most is that suffering is not a sign of God's disapproval. It's not a sign that God has not blessed you. Sometimes God uses suffering to bless you the most. I think what Christians in the West need to hear more than anything is that we should not interpret the events of our lives as some sort of mechanism for determining how God sees us, treats us, interacts with us, or what his heart, purpose, or will toward us are. Christians in the West need to hear this. We have so much abundance. We have so much material abundance. We've lived more or less in peace for hundreds of years, the freedom to share the gospel. And I am thankful for all of those things. But the result in many ways of those things has been we have become, forgive the expression, but we've become spoiled, fat and lazy Christians. We've become Christians who can't handle one ounce of discomfort, who can't handle one ounce of suffering who are so focused on the material, on the here and now, on the blessings, on the, 
on the house and the retirement and the 401k and the, does my life have meaning? Does it not have meaning? What do I want to do? What are my dreams and hopes and visions and blah, 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 on and on it goes. It's all about us. And Brother Andrew's life exemplifies something different, something completely different. When you're a Christian, your life is not your own and your blessings, the greatest blessings God can give you transcend your life. They transcend the physical, material things in life that bring joy and that bring happiness and that bring comfort. The spiritual blessings are greater than those. Our hope, our expectation is in the life to come. Our joy, our peace, our hope are in God. The peace, the joy, the blessings of God are worth far more, far more than all the treasures in this world. How many people, how many famous, rich celebrities who have everything that people in our society want, they have fame, they have fortune, are miserable, how many of them are depressed? I'm not picking on celebrities. I'm just saying the point is, you if you're a Christian, especially if you're a Christian who reads your Bible, you know this. You know this because you read it all the time. But it's not a part of our church culture anymore. At least it's not part of the mainstream. And Brother Andrew's life, first of all, God used the hardship, the disappointment, the suffering From the early part of his life, his brother passing away, his mother being disabled, him being having experiences as a soldier in war that were horrible, traumatizing. He used those things to form Andrew and to create a person who, when he was actually ready to give his life to Christ, he was all in. He was all in. I believe with all my heart that God set that, uh, God used what happened in his life to set that up. And if you asked Andrew, if what you went through as a young person and even the struggles you went through throughout your life, if that was the cost for becoming surrendered and abandoned to God and having the opportunity to live this life that has more or less been surrendered and God glorifying, was it worth it? I have, I have no doubt what he would say. I have no doubt what he would say. But also, it prepared him for what he would face. Because the fact of the matter is, as we Christians here in the West are more or less unacquainted with suffering, although that might change, and I think everyone should be prepared, although we're unacquainted with suffering, there are millions of Christians all over the world who are closely acquainted with suffering. And the truth of the matter is the church is growing vibrantly, vibrantly in all those places where the church is acquainted with suffering. And in the places where the church, the the believers have not been acquainted with suffering, the church is not growing. And this pattern can be seen all through church history. It's just the way it is. It was even Brother Andrew's back injury Whereas a lot of Christians would probably say, God, why am I going through this? Why haven't you healed me? It was Andrew's back injury that God used to show him, to give him a life's work, a ministry that was 
that was a, it was different than anything he would have done. If he wouldn't have had a bad back, he wouldn't have even thought of going to Warsaw. He would have joined a missionary organization and gone somewhere and we probably would never know who he is. But God even used that to send him in the direction that he needed to go in. And actually, believe it or not, it's amazing. Later on in life, I think in the 90s or 80s, Andrew was in a plane accident. (laughs) Believe it or not, leaving the United States, he was in a plane accident and he survived and he was fine. And the only thing that happened in the plane accident was this horrible back pain that he lived with on and off for over 20 years was gone. He's never had it since. Isn't that amazing? So God's so good and so gracious to his saints and to his servants that even that God ended up remedying that pain, that bit of suffering that Andrew went through after he used it for his glory. I think all all of these Uh, The power of egoless living, the importance of Christians to prioritize coming in the name of the Lord, representing Jesus Christ above all else, and the fact that Andrew understands what it means to be a Christian in terms of when we endure hardships. I think all these go together really well, and, and they're actually sort of typified in an event that happened Years and years later, in in the 2000s, when um, Brother Andrew went and met uh, the leader of Hezbollah, Ayatollah. His name is Ayatollah Fadlala, I believe. And Andrew kept knocking on doors and writing to people and asking if he could meet him. He went and he finally got an audience with this Ayatollah and he brought him a Bible and he prayed with him and he told him at the time there were some some Christian workers who had were being held hostage by Hezbollah. And he told him, I've put my house in order and I am willing to exchange myself. I want you to release this specific prisoner, this specific Christian worker that Andrew knew about. He said, this man has been wrongly held and I want you to take me instead. And it didn't end up happening, but, uh, but those prisoners did end up getting released eventually but that just typifies, it typifies what a surrendered life is, especially as it relates to hardship, hardship and suffering. This is what, this is what he said uh, when he met the Ayatollah, one of the leaders of Hezbollah. He said, um, In the spirit of cooperation, I believe God wants you to release the hostages, all of them. The Ayatollah did not respond immediately, but finally said, I don't see how I can help you. You're the leader of Hezbollah. Surely you can order the hostages released. He answered, you can meet with Hezbollah leaders, but I do not represent Hezbollah. Andrew said, I have put my house in order. I'm fully prepared to stay here and take the place of this man. He's suffered enough. Chain me to the radiator and let them go. The Ayatollah said, how can you say that? And Andrew responded, this is the spirit of Jesus. I stood and spread out my arms to demonstrate. He died on the cross to let us go free. He died so we could live. Now I'm ready to give myself up so my friend can go free. That is what Christianity is all about. The Ayatollah said, I've never heard about that kind of Christianity. They ended up becoming friends. 
And uh, Andrew continued to tell him about real Christianity in Jesus. I think that story sort of beautifully typifies how all these go together. The power of giving up your ego, surrendering your life completely to God, the power of representing Jesus Christ first and foremost, and understanding that even when we suffer, God will use it for his glory. All things he will work together for the good of those that love him and are called according to his purpose. That, my friends, is the story of Brother Andrew. That's part of the story. There's much, much more there is than that. But ultimately, more than anything else, I think his life exemplifies what God can do when one person, when just one person is willing to surrender themselves, to give up their ego and actually truly follow God completely by faith. God can do anything, absolutely anything with a life like that. Uh, I'll post some other resources in the in the podcast description about Brother Andrew, about his life. The book that I used a lot for this is the book I mentioned, God's Smuggler, but there's also there's, there's lots of resources about him. You can read about him on the Open Doors website. There's another book called Light Force that's about his ministry to the Muslim world in the years since uh, 1967. Anyway, um, I hope that it was inspiring for you. Biographies that inspire is this new sort of series. I, I won't be doing them every week or every month, but I'll certainly do them as often as I can because I think... Outside of scripture, reading about faithful Christian people who live surrendered lives is one of the most inspiring things that you can do. If you have any questions at all about Brother Andrew, please don't hesitate to reach out to me and I'll do the best I can to answer them. Thanks for joining us this week. I hope it's been a blessing to you as much as it's been for me. This is Blake signing off. Stay blessed, live loved, and see you next week.